0: Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Frode Huber, a student assistant at the Nordic Institute of Asia Studies. Joining me today is Tabitha Rosendale, doctoral student at the Center for East and Southeast Asia Studies. At Lund University and an affiliate scholar here at NIAS. Today we'll be discussing the Chinese use of Buddhism in strategic narratives in Sri Lanka. Welcome to Peter. Thank you
1: so much and thanks for having me.
0: Now you recently did field work in Sri Lanka. Could you tell us a bit about your research and your experience?
1: Uh, yes. So I first went to Sri Lanka in February of this year, 2023. My first trip was actually just about Building up networks of academics, Uh, so visiting different scholars and different universities in Sri Lanka, speaking to officials from the Sri Lankan government and sort of trying to get a lay of the land of how the economic and political situation of the country is at the moment. I'm not a Sri Lanka scholar. I come from a China studies background, but since I started my PhD project in 2020, I've been focusing on Sri Lanka as a case study, primarily in my research on Chinese foreign politics and specifically the Belt and Road Initiative, the Global Development Initiative, and these kind of mega infrastructure development initiatives that China has been rolling out, especially under the Xi Jinping administration. So Essentially, I decided to focus on Sri Lanka as a case study because the country has a very interesting political framework that can be characterized quite broadly by saying that it has quite a weak governance framework and it has very weak investment regimes. And there are a lot of uh, inherent issues in Sri Lanka at the moment, such as corruption issues, transparency issues in general, and lack of documentation efforts for a lot of these projects that China is engaged in. So I thought it would be interesting to look at Sri Lanka, because Sri Lanka has also been one of the most discussed cases when it comes to the implementation of the Belt and Road Initiative, especially after 2017, when China Merchants Court took over the 99-year lease of the Hambantota Court in the south of the country. And this very quickly became internationally dubbed as the uh, debt trapped diplomacy of the Chinese state. Following years, especially until 2019, there was a lot of emphasis from Western scholars on looking at how exactly China's trapping and indebting countries in order to gain political support through all of these unsustainable debt practices and, and loan patterns. So I figured a lot of these people, a lot of these Western scholars writing these things, either had never been to Sri Lanka themselves or had no broader understanding of what exactly the framework is that China's operating in. And generally speaking, we've also seen that the Belt and Road Initiative has been, and of course, as part of China's foreign policy, this makes sense to an extent, it has been conceptualized mainly from the sort of top-down perspective. Everything has been Considered as very centrally controlled in countries like Sri Lanka and developing countries in the global south specifically. So what I wanted to do with my project is I wanted to go to the country and dig deeper in the host country agency, how Sri Lankan actors can also show different types of agency when it comes to their negotiations and contestations with the Chinese government and the Chinese government actors, including the state-owned enterprises. So... I went there in February. I experienced a lot of interesting things. Then I went back in June and, and returned to Denmark in July. I've been interviewing Sri Lankan officials, uh, actors that have been engaged in different parts of the, the like trade side of things and the infrastructural side of things. And I've been talking to a wide variety of people, academics, stakeholders uh, from independent think tanks different kinds of workers, human rights organizations, and so on and so forth. People that have somehow been engaged in or have been on the receiving part of the Belt and Road Initiative and, and sort of Chinese influencing generally construed. So now, the, essentially, um, the first two trips focused on looking at, again, how the Blancan agency has played out when it comes to as I said, negotiating these different projects and also just looking at how the Elden Road in itself is a lot more responsive to local demands and how the state-owned enterprises that carry out this implementation and carry out the day-to-day governance of the projects are also a lot more embroiled in different external issues than we previously have assumed. So the state-owned enterprises have like an interesting dual role uh, and a lot of extra responsibilities, essentially.
0: Last year, you published an article in the Pacific Review titled China's Buddhist Strategic Narratives, Benefits in Buddhism. And you have this great concept of strategic narratives. Could you tell us a bit about how China is using Buddhism as a public diplomacy tool in Sri Lanka?
1: Yes. So China's been trying to construct different uh, strategic narratives in Sri Lanka, and these are not um, necessarily a new phenomenon. They have Um, well, they're part and parcel of attempts from former administrations in constructing these sets of frames like China's peaceful rise, the harmonious world, and these kinds of things. So what these narratives do is they try to portray China as a like-minded friend of Sri Lanka due to the inherent Buddhist values and beliefs and the sort of Buddhist state of the two countries. So China has been promoting these uh, these narratives in a way to sort of try and mitigate or decrease criticism of Golden Road projects and of Chinese sort of presence in Sri Lanka, more generally speaking. And of course, uh, the reason why China is doing this is that generally speaking, we can say that China's religious diplomacy has been growing for many years and Buddhist diplomacy is part of this larger trend of using soft power to persuade other countries that China has sort of harmonious intentions. But what we've seen essentially is that under Xi Jinping's administration, all of this use of of religious diplomacy and and cultural diplomacy in general as well has been sharpened significantly um, because increasingly China is realizing that it needs to portray itself through culture, through sort of like-minded values and so on and so forth to make sure that its image in the international system is better um, because it it, it increasingly wants to be seen as the sort of responsible stakeholder and as I said as an alternative governance pole to to the Western countries and especially the U.S.
0: So how appealing do you think that this narrative of this use of Buddhism and the use of traditional Chinese values is compared to, for example, the American and Japanese narratives of free and open Indo-Pacific, which in many ways seem antagonistic to the Chinese?
1: Well, it's interesting. There's a bit of a duality there because on the one hand, Sri Lanka is an incredibly Like It's a Buddhist-majority country. Around 70% of the population uh, are Buddhists. And most of these, of course, belong to the Sinhalese-majority ethnic group. So Buddhism has sort of received the foremost place and has been enshrined in the constitution of Sri Lanka as essentially this state religion that the state has to foster and protect at all costs. This also means that Sri Lanka has a Buddhist advisory committee, among other things, which is made up of the Mahasanga or some of the most influential patriarch monks from some of the most influential sects in Sri Lanka. And these very influential monks, they can sign off on decisions that are viewed as being beneficial to Buddhism while opposing any decision that is viewed as detrimental to Buddhism. So essentially, uh, what this means is Buddhism has very pervasive influence here, and China's narratives have been largely reproduced by Sri Lanka, but whether this is a sort of genuine reproduction is a different thing, because as I also write in my article, I think primarily we have to see this in the, the framing of the motivations that the Sri Lankan stakeholders have of reproducing China's narratives. So. The clergy, the politicians and so on, they all have specific motivations for actually leaning on China's narratives in this way. So the general public is a bit more skeptical about these things. Of course, some Buddhist believers will remain convinced that China is a better ally to Sri Lanka than other powers because of the shared Buddhist mindset. As I said, the shared Buddhist history and trajectory between the two countries. But in general, um, there are specific motivations for the country, both when it comes to domestic politics, but also when it comes to foreign politics. So Sri Lanka, on the one hand, all of these politicians and the monks and so on and so forth, want to portray China's interest in the country in a more beneficial way. And, you know, again, portray that China's a more like-minded ally and all of these things, because they also thoroughly need Chinese investments. So that's one way of sort of getting around some of the criticism, at least, saying, well, actually, China's here as a genuine friend. We can accept these big investments. Um, The other thing is, by continuing to say that China or that Chinese investments are accepted by Sri Lanka because of the Buddhist ties rather than just the economic ties or... China's non-interference principles or anything else, it essentially also makes it easier for the government to say, well, I mean, other Buddhist countries are also welcome here to give similar investments. So we're a Buddhist country, we like to have Buddhist friends. If any of our Buddhist friends want to help us, that is very acceptable too. And of course, this also means more generally speaking that because of Sri Lanka's very bad human rights reputation and then all of these kinds of things that have happened during the Sri Lankan civil war, Sri Lanka also recognizes that it also needs to portray itself and its its foreign policy through a more benevolent or harmonious lens. And Buddhism is, is a way of doing that. So it lends itself well to a lot of motivations for a lot of players.
0: Sri Lanka has faced numerous allegations and, and concerns regarding the human rights abuse. And China has this history of... Presenting Western countries, liberal democracies, as lecturers, as as school teachers, who try to change developing countries. How is this used in the Chinese Sri Lanka strategy?
1: Yeah, so Sri Lanka has had a very is perceived, generally speaking, in the West as an incredibly difficult human rights situation, um, especially because of as I mentioned before, the Sinhalese ethnic majority versus the Tamil ethnic minority and the Muslim ethnic minority in the country. So generally speaking, a lot of atrocities were committed during the civil war. Um, There's still a lot of issues in the country, uh, especially in in different parts of the country. So, of course, this creates difficulties. And so a lot of the Western players, when they come to Sri Lanka, they, they offer aid or they offer Investments or these kinds of things, well, they have to prescribe certain things. They'll say, well, in order for us to help you, you need to deal with your human rights situation, you need to deal with the legal aspects, you need to deal with the judicial aspects, you need to have a more transparent framework when it comes to documentation efforts, when it comes to, again, legal issues and so on and so forth. So, compared to that, I mean, this this sort of prescriptive behavior that some Sri Lankan stakeholders say that the West has, China is then coming in with this sort of Buddhist diplomacy, sort of one facet or one string uh, of a multi-pronged approach, you can say. China is, of course, primarily selling its aid and investments in Sri Lanka through portraying itself as being a non-interference power through saying things such so. as we never meddle in the internal affairs of other countries. We're really just here to help us as you know like a like-minded to equal partner. Mm. And again, we're not interested in what you do with the money uh, in itself. Like we trust that you will use the money to to build what you need. And of course, often China is also the player that builds there are a lot of built operate and transfer um, bot schemes in Sri Lanka due to this. The need that Sri Lanka also has for infrastructural, let's say, like uh, players that are adept at infrastructural development, but also actually operating and governing and all of these kinds of things. So China has a set of frames that it sells its aid under. So it says, well, we have also been colonized by the West. You know, Sri Lanka has this colonial hangover, as it's often described. Sri Lanka has been on the receiving end of of colonization and it's been 75 years since uh, Sri Lanka was last colonized. And there's a lot of issues even to this day with Sri Lanka's agricultural sector, Sri Lanka's bureaucracy, the way the parliament works. And a, a lot of this can be attributed to British colonization. And of course, there was other colonization, the Dutch colonization, Portuguese colonization before this. But the point is, China is able to use this and to say, well, we were also colonized, at least to some extent, you know, by the West, and we feel your pain, and and we will never do that if you're working with us. Whereas the West wants to change you from the get-go, wants to prescribe all of these things, you don't need to do any of that if you're working with us. In general, of course, as I said, there there are many frames that China is employing at the same time, but it's all part of this larger strategy where China is really trying to position itself very strongly, especially in developing countries in the global south, against the Western countries, against sort of the liberal democratic order and all of these overarching frames.
0: Now, how are the Chinese narratives reproduced or rearticulated in Sri Lanka by both the Buddhist leaders and the civil society?
1: So generally what happens is I mean, and what what we see is that China will write an article concerning certain historical events, for example, the historical trajectory between the two countries, such as the Chinese monk Fa Xian coming to Sri Lanka back in the ancient times, bringing Chinese Buddhist knowledge and also bringing back Chinese Bu- uh, Sri Lankan Buddhist knowledge to uh, China, and these kind of like old historical buddhist links between the two countries Mm -hmm. this is something that is often mentioned you know this these long-standing ties between them of course then a lot of these these articles will as i said mention other buzzwords such as like buddhist legacy uh the buddhist Values, the way in which constructing the Bolton Road Initiative will lead to the creation of a Buddhist harmonious world, quite a variety of different overlapping and interacting narratives that have all sort of been cleared from the most, uh, let's say, like the topmost or the foremost level in the Chinese political system. And a lot of this is, is promoted through the United Front Work Department, of course. A lot of it uh, is promoted through the Buddhist Association of China, through the State Administration for Religious Affairs, and of course also through officials like so Chinese ambassadors in Sri Lanka, um, other Chinese officials in Sri Lanka, and for the Sri Lankan side, the way in which this is reproduced is then often if China writes something about the historical legacy, Fa Xian and all of these things, then This narrative is often reproduced more or less one-to-one in a Sri Lankan newspaper. These are the things that are discussed at these high-level Buddhist meetings as well, how the two countries can sort of help each other through Buddhism. and Again, in my article, I outline the specific ways in which the Belt and Road is linked to Buddhism as well. So as I said before, how um, constructing the Belt and Road Initiative is sort of the, the first step and, and like co-constructing the Maritime Slope Road is the first step of making sure that the spread of Buddhism is also sort of preserved or is, is kept up for the future generations. And so there's a lot of different ways in which these narratives are very specifically linking the sort of spread and propagation of Buddhism, but also the, as I said, harmonious world that the two countries can co-create through Buddhism and the Bolton Road. Of course, there's a lot of different things here. Uh, one of the things I also find very interesting, and now I've been in the country, so I've I've seen it with my own eyes, is that yeah. China has also constructed specific Buddhist architecture in Sri Lanka as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. So the uh, Colombo Lotus Tower, for example, which is sort of fashioned after the Lotus Sutra, and, and some of these are the large uh, investments that are meant to portray the very tight relations between the two countries over Buddhism.
0: So as you mentioned, the state-owned enterprises have a large role to play, but how do they navigate the strategies that the communist party creates? How do they navigate the wider strategies? Do they have to conform with it?
1: Well, technically, they don't really have to, because what happens um, usually with the state-owned enterprises is that you have... Let's say, like, if, if we're trying to outline who the actors in Chinese development are, then at, at the top, of course, you have the CCP, the, uh, the Politburo Standing uh, Committee, you have the leading small groups and all of these very specific individuals that outline the overarching ideology. Then you have the central government in itself, which is already a different part of this Iron Triangle framework, where you have the party at the top, you can say, and then you have the central government, uh, which is the government part, and then you have the, the business part. So again, the ideology is charted at one level, uh, and then at the government level, the central government, of course, uh, there are different ministries uh, that are in charge of the general responsibility of Chinese development practices but also like overarching steering of projects uh, and then of course you have the state banks which are in charge of the funding primarily the funding comes from the state banks and there's also specific funding agencies like SIPCA but investments more specifically then you have state-owned enterprises and especially China Merchants Group and China Harbor Engineering Company which is a subsidiary of China Communications Construction Company Those are the two main ones that are engaged in countries like Sri Lanka. And they're two of the main top, uh, like you could say, like two of the foremost state-owned enterprises in the Chinese system under SASAC. Aside from that, of course, on the ground, you also have some private enterprises, at least to a small extent, and you have officials such as CAFRAs and ambassadors and so on that are sort of embroiled in all of this. But the state-owned enterprises... not really like they have to adhere to the ideological content to some degree so of course they can't do anything that is outright non-buddhist they also can't do anything which is like which uh, would endanger the legitimacy of the chinese communist party or anything like this but to a large extent they on the one hand as i said they have to follow these overarching ideological guidelines but at the same time, they have to also pursue commercial imperatives. So this is all part of the same system. Uh, it's called the Iron Triangle. Or it's referred to as the Iron Triangle Framework or Nomenclature System in which party, government and business are all operating together um, sort of in, in different strands, you can say. Hmm. So the, the state-owned enterprises are integrated into the National Belt Road Strategy, and they have to promote themselves through these special narratives or sometimes even branding exercises to win the projects. And this also means then that they have to contend with the domestic fragmentation and decentralization that's happening in China between the ministries and departments and funding agencies. So already they have to navigate a very complex domestic field in China And then when they go out in Belt and Road countries and they have to implement projects, of course, the relationship with the Sri Lankan government is also very complex. And usually what happens in the countries is very case-by-case. And what happens in the projects even is case-by-case. No one project has exactly the same trajectory. Uh, Usually you can say it's driven by very specific individuals. And quite often this means that the CEOs of the specific state-owned enterprise carry a large responsibility for what actually happens. And I mean, if not the CEO, then at least someone else was at the sort of top level and who is placed in charge of the project at the local level in the host country. So you can say the business comes first, but of course, there's also a lot of complications because of this, because previously like um, Lanka has this very weak governance framework and very weak investment regimes. So the state-owned enterprises are operating under these difficulties under these constraints they have to operate in a place where there's corruption and so on and so forth and because they're also more present and visible they also have to deal more and more with externalities such as protests from you know the the public diplomatic issues whenever it arises so like they are They've become, in a way, part of the diplomatic effort in the different countries as well, because CEOs, and if not the CEOs, then someone else at the top, they have to also navigate and mitigate a lot of issues. They have to, like, you know, figure out a lot of issues with their stakeholder counterparts in Sri Lanka. So, generally speaking, the state owned enterprises are in Sri Lanka to make workable, sustainable projects, but there's all of these negotiations and contestations from different stakeholders that, and I mean, at either side of the bilateral divide, which complicates their role, because the state and enterprises obviously always have to follow the overarching international content, but to some extent, ideological deviation is also tolerated by the CCP, because again, the C and the SOEs have to pursue these commercial imperatives. So they have a very specific role in all of this, you can say, and it's really a complex role for them. Most of these, most of these their own enterprises probably won't adhere to Buddhism and they won't, you know, say anything about Buddhism when they're building things. They leave that to the the party officials. So what you can see is you have this kind of two-pronged system where on the one hand, you have the officials from uh, the party that are there to talk to Sri Lanka about ideology. And of course, when I say the party, I also mean the State Administration of Religious Affairs, the Buddhist Association of China, and all of these other players that are somehow also promoting the official narratives of Buddhism in Sri Lanka. So on the one hand, you have all of these high-level visits, you have all of these high-ranking narratives, you have all of this sort of official overt communication which is all about buddhism and then on the on the other hand you have the, the state-owned enterprises that are actually sort of doing all the you know heavy lifting in the background when it comes to actually building the projects and, and operating them it's quite uh it's quite a nuanced implementation in that sense but it also just means that it can run into a lot of issues as i said because there's already a lot of fragmentation and decentralization taking place from the Chinese side uh, and when that incurs the Sri Lankan framework again as I said just more and more problems can sort of crop up because it's also very difficult for a state-owned enterprise which has maybe operates on certain models and certain experiences that it has gained from the Chinese domestic setting to go into a country like Sri Lanka and to get the same results most of the time, they have to contend with a whole host of different issues and considerations. And as I said, what also happens is that the Sri Lankan stakeholders have their own motivations and their own ideas of what projects they want, why they love these projects. And quite often, these projects are not really that workable either because they're primarily being constructed for political reasons. I mean, I'm not here to say that China is blameless in all of this, but I'm just here to say that China is is getting a large amount of criticism for creating these sort of projects. But quite often, you have, we have to also recognize that the projects are selected by the elite stakeholders in the different host countries. So at the very least, China should have been more responsible. China should have been more accountable or like the the accountability for China should be bigger because obviously it's still China's project. China is still at the end of the negotiation table. But we have to recognize that the motivations and and the the agency in general of the host country matters a lot as well.
0: Thank you. Now, I have one last question for you. You mentioned before that you're going to do fieldwork in Sri Lanka again here in October. But could you tell us a bit about the future of your research? What are you going to do when you go back to Sri Lanka?
1: So at the moment, when I'm going back to Sri Lanka this time, I am going to be writing on the fourth article of my PhD project, like my overarching PhD project, which is at the moment entitled Fragmented Power, Chinese Governance Practices of the 21st Century Maritime Silk Road. And after I finished this fourth article, in essence, I just... I have have a few more things I want to work on and I have to write, of course, before I finish my PhD, but it's tough to say what exactly will happen, you know, um, a lot of things can change, obviously, in this last year of my PhD and and I can, of course, find new interests I want to pursue. But generally speaking, I think I'm going to continue looking at the shift that we see now from the Belt and Road Initiative to the Global Development Initiative Mm -hmm. and these new types of overarching Chinese foreign policy initiatives that are there to portray China in a certain way. So what I'm really interested in is looking at the global competition between the Western powers and China when it comes to China's global ambitions in the global south, but also more generally the shifts that we're going to see, because, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative in itself has been very heavily focused on, well, infrastructure construction, massive loans and investments. And after the, I mean, after COVID-19, and and especially after all of the debt renegotiation or debt restructuring Issues that a lot of countries have been in after COVID 19, including China itself, of course, which which has had quite a large, let's say, it has had to face somewhat bitter reality when it comes to its own economic framework as well and and then its own economic development. I'm just curious to see how China is going to structure these kinds of initiatives going forward and what exactly is going to happen more generally speaking, that these kinds of initiatives. So what I am imagining is that we're going to see a restructuring away from these heavy infrastructure, huge infrastructure, mega infrastructure projects, um, trans-global infrastructure projects, into something that is based a lot more on soft power and is a lot more, let's say, like multifaceted in the way that Again, now we see that China really wants to step up to the mantle in a way and become the real competitor to the U.S. and the international stage. China really wants to become this new responsible stakeholder in the international system. I'm just interested in seeing how exactly Xi Jinping and the, the CCP is going to try and do this going forward. So the Global Development Initiative, as I mentioned, is one of the things that China has sort of Branched into now, which is more about soft power than the Golden Road has been, at least from what it looks like right now. The Global Security Initiative and the Global Civilization Initiative, which of course some critics have already started calling the Global Civilization Initiative after Xi Jinping. <laughs> so um, but it, it's going to be interesting to follow, I think. Uh these changes in Chinese foreign politics going forward, especially seen in, in light of some of the domestic issues that China is currently
0: facing. Thank you. I'm looking forward to following you. And uh, (laughs) Thank you. I will put your article in the show notes. And thank you so much for coming. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration and studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.